Psalm 4 is what is known as a lament. It's a lament of David. And in terms of what we're reading this morning, if you'd like to help or read along, Genesis 32 uh, from verse 22. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jacob and the dream that he had and how he named the spot where he had the dream Bethel, the house of God. This is further along in the life of Jacob, chapter 32. Verse 22, it says, Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maidens and his 11 children, and they crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent them across whatever he, he sent across whatever he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. And basically, Jacob said, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And the man he wrestled with said this, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But when he said, what is, why is it that you ask my name? And he said, he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Then the sun rose and he crossed over and he was limping on his thigh. And to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh on the sinew of his hip. And then I'm going to read, and Derek didn't know this, the portion that he read. I just asked him to pray this morning, and he read this passage from Lamentations. Chapter 3, verse 19 to 25. So it's worth reading again. Remember my suffering and my bitterness. The old language, the wormwood and the bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind and therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, or the Lord is my source. He's all that I need, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Last week, we looked at the book of Ruth. The week before that, we looked at um, the book we know as the Song of Songs. And this week, I want to look at Lamentations. And there are books and books read about heartache and suffering. There are so many things that deal with the kind of hurt and pain that we have uh, because there is a huge amount. Lamentations does not in any way offer an explanation. One of the things that we look at in our kind of world is we want to know why. Well, Ruth, Jeremiah, Job, Lamentations, none of these books ever offer an, 
an answer to the why question. But what they don't do is try to eliminate it and try to uh, make it less than it actually is. What Lamentations does is it says God enters into our suffering where we are. God is with us in this moment, and he is a companion with us in the whole way. Book of Job says, uh, as sparks fly upward, man is born to trouble or suffering. You can't avoid it. You can't can't get past it. No one is going to get through life without dealing with pain and heartache and suffering and hurt and affliction and all the other words that compound along the way. Last week, looking at Ruth, what we didn't touch on at all was the way in which Naomi gets into the picture. She leaves uh, Israel, goes to Moab with her husband and two boys because of a famine. They leave all the known world, they go to a place where they are exiles, where they are um, refugees of a famine. There, her husband and her two boys die after they got married. And then she decides to go back home. So everything that is underpinning her security is gone. And the first thing we see essentially of Naomi is that she's, she has a complaint against God. What on earth is going on here? And if you go and read the book of Ruth and the book of Job, Naomi and Job really run in parallel with each other. Because the stuff that happens to them happens to them. They are not culpable in most of what goes on. Jeremiah and the list goes on. You can even go into the New Testament and see how we think so often there's this subtext for us as Christians where we surely we follow Jesus we shouldn't have to suffer but look at the way that Peter and John and those who were the disciples of Jesus had to deal with stuff that Stephen was stoned now we're not talking little uh, sort of things that you pick up in your hand these are things that they would crush you with The church has been persecuted throughout the ages. Even now, we talk about the persecuted church in countries where they are hostile to the gospel. There are Christians now who suffer. So this is not something that we can escape. In the West, we have almost had had a gospel where it has been success and praise and upbeat. And so we have lost the capacity to actually understand how God comes alongside in our suffering and deals with the stuff that we face as we go through it. Lamentations doesn't avoid it. It doesn't minimize it. It doesn't even explain it. It just engages with what is there. And there's a conscious plunge into the middle of it. So he doesn't look away. The the, the person who writes Lamentations doesn't sort of look in another direction, he looks at what has happened squarely in the face and and he begins to talk about all the calamities that happened, all the inexplicable reasons for Israel's security to have gone. And the Bible shows us often that God enters into our situation, our suffering humanity. That's what the incarnation actually is that's what jesus coming 
is actually about. Uh, Isaiah 53. I think I marked it here so that I could read it to you. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastened for our well-being. Jesus comes and he, uh, he takes on our broken humanity and he redeems it by what he does for us. The suffering God on the cross. He suffers in our place. And this is where we come to, we've talked about this in the past in terms of the kingdom of God. The kingdom has come, yes, all the glory of the resurrection and the new life that we have in Christ, but it's not in its fullness. That will only happen when the whole age is wrapped up. Between the, the resurrection and the end of the age, we are in what you like a mopping up operation where we still have to deal with people who die, people who suffer, people who experience pain. And we cannot afford to look the other way because that's not what the Bible teaches us. That's not what the gospel teaches us. So what we don't get here is a lecture. This is not about satisfying our intellect in any way. We don't get a program where if we do X, Y, and Z, we will get past the issue of suffering. Even when we spoke a few weeks ago about forgiveness, and Peter says, when it comes to forgiving, should I forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And we understood, and as we looked at forgiveness, the whole thing of the, the grapple with, the hurt, the, the stuff that is done to us, and how we, how we wrestle with all, all the hurt and pain, that, the suffering that comes to us, and we learn what it is to live in the good of being able to forgive those who sin against us. It doesn't answer the why question, but it does give us a resolution. There will be a resolution. Now, the context of Lamentations is important because it's, it's almost a complete thing. In 587, Nebuchadnezzar's army drove into town. I mean, we're not going to bore you with all the history, but essentially what happened in that moment, they had been... so so. Um, the army had been encamped around Jerusalem. There was a little thing that happened with the Egyptians who came up and they were wanting to, to sort of, and they were a bit of a thorn in the flesh to Nebuchadnezzar's army. So he went down, he swatted the Egyptians away, then he came back and annihilated Jerusalem. In that whole context, what had happened is the city had been held hostage. They had, they had not had water, they had not had food. There was carnage on a grand scale. Mothers were eating their children. It's documented here. When the Babylonians came into town, the king was exiled. The priests were all exiled. The prophets were shut up. The, the buildings, all the main buildings were knocked down. The walls of the city were flattened. The temple was raised to the ground. All the symbols of their national identity in terms of their religion were hoiked off to Babylon. 
everything from top to bottom was annihilated. Their land they lost, they were put into exile. And it was shocking because these were the things that God had provided for them. These were the things that had formed their identity as Israel. And now they were all gone. And Lamentations is written in that context where all the securities have been wiped off, off the board. It's hard for us to even begin to understand in our comfortable modern world how devastating the situation was and what, what Lamentations comes out of. And it's written soon after that when it's still raw in the memory of people. And then it happened again. On the same day, many years later, the second temple was also brought to the ground. And that's why even today, we talk about the Megalith, the five scrolls that are read at the various festivals of Jewish life. Um, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. This one is uh, read on the ninth of Ab, the day of the month where Jerusalem was annihilated once and then again. It's, it, it, it is a wound in the identity of the Jewish people. A time of national humiliation and suffering, and they reflect on it. Over the years, we've seen how people respond, and there's generally two ways people respond to hurt and pain and suffering. It can lead to a deeper understanding and dependence on God and who he is and what he is for us. Or it can be that people reject, they conclude that God hates them and hates their sin and, and that has abandoned them. And it's not always either one or the other. It, 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 it's, it's a mixture of this often and sometimes we respond in one way and sometimes we respond in another. But what this book does say is that God takes sin seriously. The little peccadilloes that Israel thought that they were able to get away with, the little sins that were just in secret, had cumulatively come to a place where God said, you know, I've been so patient with you, but enough. The mercy of God is something that we have spoken about in the last couple of weeks about his grace and forgiveness and his love. And that predicates everything, that underlies everything. But when stuff happens to it, what Lamentations is trying to say to us is that we need to face it full on, look at it, that we need to, that we need in a way to measure it. And we need to articulate it for ourselves. Now, all these are ideals because when stuff happens to us, it's so raw. The last thing you want to do is, is to sort of sit around and look at it and say, well, what is going on? But the truth is that when we do that, we begin to get a handle on it. And that's what Lamentations does for Israel. And that's what Lament does for us 
as followers of Jesus. It says to us that God wounds and binds up, that there is both the cross and the resurrection. Now, Lamentations is really poetry. There are five poems, and they all have an acrostic form. That means simply this, that the chapter one has got 22 verses because the, the, the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And the first letter of every line starts with the letter of the, the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Dalis, and so on, all the way down to the last letter. Don't ask me to remember the Hebrew alphabet now. I've just given you all the four that I remember. <laughs> so chapter one is a simple acrostic with three lines. Chapter two is a similar one. Chapter four has two lines. Chapter five is not strictly an acrostic, but it has 22 verses like the others. The one in the middle is different because what you have in chapter one and two and chapter three and four are what are known as communal laments, where it talks about what's happened with the community. Right squeezed in the middle, and I think it's part of the stylistic thing of what the, what the, the writer is trying to say, is right in the middle is the individual one. Communal, communal, individual. In other words, we, we lament individually, but we always do it in the context of others. We don't do it as individuals. We don't do it as uh, sort of silos on our own, where we shut the door and try and get over what's happened to us. We do, we do our lamenting. We do it as individuals in community. And that middle chapter is complex in that it's got 66 verses. Three lots, and each three stanzas starts with Aleph. And the first letter of each line starts with the first letter of the alphabet, Beth, Gimel, and so it goes on. It is a highly structured, complex, thoughtful way of writing. And there are no details spared. One of the things that we do in our society is we gloss over people's difficulty and hurt because we don't know what to say. I've been at funerals where people say the most outlandish things to those who are grieving because they bumble in and they say stuff that is just actually ludicrous because we are not skilled. And so what we try to say to people is, oh, you'll get over it. You know, it, it won't be long and you'll be back to normal. We, we make little and light of our hurt and suffering. And I grew up in a situation where all kinds of conflict and hurt was basically swept under the carpet. What Lamentations does for us is it says, here's what it looks like. Have a look at it. Understand that the world life, your life, is a total stuff-up, actually. It's full of all sorts of brokenness and heartache and suffering. And that's just the people that you love, let alone people that have got it in for you. 
And what we learn when we read Lamentations is that we must take seriously the stuff that goes on, our grief, our heartache, our sorrow. And really what it's saying to the, the Hebrew people, though it doesn't come out in our English translations, is that the A to Z of suffering is actually contained in this book over and over and over and over again. They go through the alphabet of suffering. And it's really saying there is nothing here that is not also here in the middle of our lives. What you have experienced, the rejections, all the stuff that you've gone through, it's contained. God knows. So it's not limitless. We don't look at suffering and hurt and pain as an endless thing. We understand that when we face it, what we are saying is when we look at lamentations, when we learn to lament for ourselves, is that we, we name it, we process it, we articulate it, and it has an end. Ultimately, we know the end is when Jesus wraps the whole universe up and he says, look, it's all better. But essentially, it happens over and over. There is this renewal, this re-energizing of our lives as we learn to come to his grace and mercy and his love and experience his forgiveness and reconciliation. And we are aware of his presence with us and we are healed. So this is not a wallowing in, but it is a real facing of the situation. When we face it like this, what we are saying is that we can express the complexity of this terror, but we know that it has an end. Evil is not forever. And that's what Revelation says in chapter 20. It says there is a new heaven and a new earth and everything will be new. And what God designed, and I think it's important to say at this point, and it just pops into my head, but we have grown up so often in the evangelical world and the, and the reformed world with original sin. There is no such thing as original sin. What there is, is original goodness. Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of everything for us, God constantly is saying, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he creates man and he says, it's very good. And then he has a rest. This aberration, this brokenness, this sinfulness comes in at a later stage. And what Jesus says to us is that there is an end to this as well. There's not only a beginning to darkness, there is an end to it as well, when the light will overcome everything. And what Lamentations does is it says, you and I are still caught in the vortex of life like it is now. And there will be all kinds of things that will be attracted to us. I was looking after the HR department in a television company. And we, we battled to pay above the rate going for all the others we wanted to be able to say, our guys on the floor, the shop floor, there were four or five hundred people. They get actually above what you can get anywhere else. 
And we became a place where people knew that you got a better wage there than you got anywhere else. And I won't go into all the details, but the, the secret police started whisking off individuals, women, beating them up, torturing them, making them confess that they had stolen stuff, that they were dismissed, and then trying to get their family installed there. It was, it was horrifying what happened. And there we were doing what was good, but evil crept in and we had to face and address it. Not because we asked for it, but be, because doing good, we attracted stuff. You will attract stuff if you do what is right. You will have to face pain and heartache. And as you go through each of these poems in turn, get a good modern translation and read through it. There's a look inside, a look outside. So it, it looks, examines internally what's gone on, what's gone on externally. It looks at judgment and, and God's response to sin. In the, as I said, in the middle, there's this individual passage. Chap chapter four repeats some of the stuff and um, chapter five is essentially a prayer. So pain is labeled, ordered, defined, named. It has a beginning and an end. It's not forever. And that's what we have as a hope in terms of us as Christians. It's not infinite. It's not, it's not inexhaustible. It's what David said in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of deep darkness, I fear no evil. Because you are with me, your rod and staff comfort me. And you, he sets a table before us. There's blessing. It doesn't mean there is no value of deep darkness, no, no desolation that we experience. Where are we in terms of time? So as I said, right at the beginning, there's so much that can be said that's a huge subject. The reason to read the passage from Genesis is this. In a way, Jacob's life helps us with this whole process because um, whether it was just or unjust, he has to run to a far country. And we, 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 we experience Jacob in chapter 28, as we did a couple of weeks ago, where he puts his head down to rest. And he has this visionless dream of angels ascending and descending on a staircase where he is. And he, he wakes up and he says, oh, my word, I didn't realize that God was in this place. And he calls it the house of God. He has this experience of God, this uh, if you like, um, epiphany. There's a lot of hap happenings that happen in between, but then we get to chapter 32 and the passage that we read, and this is different. Chapter 32 is he's on his way back to the land of promise. He's moving back with all that he's been blessed with, a wife and children and servants and flocks and gold and all sorts of other stuff that he's in his exile 
he has accumulated as God has blessed him. And he sends them all across the brook. And he's on this side. And he goes to sleep again. And there's this man, and we're not told exactly how it happens and who it is, and there's all sorts of conjecture, but let's just go with this at the moment. But he wrestles all night. And this word in Hebrew isn't sort of like sparring. This is almost life and death type of stuff that's going on. And just as this, the, the, there is this little gray glimmer on the horizon of dawn, as we read it, he says, no, uh, this guy goes and he grabs him and he said, no, well, don't go until you've blessed me. And who are you? And, and then all of this happens and he touches his thigh and dislocates it. And Jacob forever walks with a limp. Strapping young man with a young family. And he is now, he's now partially crippled by this encounter. The encounter is with God. Because he says, let's call this place Peniel, which means the face of God. Because he says, I have seen the face of God and I have lived. Lamentations is Israel as a corporate entity <coughs> grappling with the fact that they have wrestled with their own sinfulness, with the, the violence of the Babylonian kingdom, with all kinds of different things. And God has touched their thigh and they walk with a limp. They go into exile. They lose the temple. They lose the land. They are bereft. but they see the face of God. We, we, I don't know if I can really say this, but we would like to see the face of God without the struggle. And even when Jesus uses language like those who are thirsty, what he's saying is, how much do you long for it? How much are you willing to grapple with your own humanity with the with the, with all the stuff of your existence in order to have that face-to-face -face experience because i guarantee you will walk with a limp and that's when henry known calls us wounded healers we, we we are only able to shed the light and the love of god as much as we have grappled with our own brokenness and experienced the reconciliation the healing the salvation of God. Romans 12, 15 says, we, we celebrate essentially those who celebrate, but we weep with those who weep. We don't do this on our own. We do it in community. We do it in conjunction with those around us who care for us and love us and encourage us. And the interesting thing is, when we hold hands and we listen patiently, have you experienced someone who is bereaved or someone who has been uh, almost mortally wounded by the actions of someone else? They talk about it over and over and over and over again as they begin to try to make sense and articulate it 
and grapple with their own feelings. And part of our responsibility as church to each other is that we are there, that we don't counsel and judge, but we just listen and love. Because in that way, we help people with lamenting. And if you go back and read Ruth, Naomi is bitterly complaining at the beginning of the book. And as it works out towards the end, they name the child and they say, Naomi has had a son. She didn't. Ruth did. But she, it, it's, it's her son. It's her healing. It's her restoration. We have lost the ability to mourn and face our sufferings in the church. And I do believe that we need to write songs that adequately talk about what it is to face and to lament. We need to, 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 to be patient with each other in terms of our own grief and stuff that we face. But here's the thing. We do not do it on our own. And we do not do it without hope. And that's why at the center of the center of the book, there is this passage that Derek read this morning that I've read and that I'm going to read again because essentially this is where the whole nub of everything rests. I remember my suffering, my woundedness, my homelessness, my pain, my affliction, whatever language you want to do. That's verse 19. I know it. I remember it. It's in front of me. My soul remembers and is bowed down within me. The reality is I feel burdened and crushed by it. This I recall to mind. Suddenly there's this turn in the middle of all the devastation that Lamentations has. Suddenly there's turn. I remember this though. And I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses never, ever, 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 ever cease. His compassion never, ever, 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 ever fails. So much so that every single daybreak, they are new. I have a new beginning, a new chance, a new sense of the fact that I can try again, start again, experience him again. Great is his faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. He's my source. He's all that I need. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, for the person who seeks them. There will be those who think we have spent most of our time in the Old Testament. But this is what Paul wrote to the Roman church. The church, the tiny little persecuted church in the heart of the Roman Empire. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? 
Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And that's chapter one of Ephesians as well, chapter two as well. And then this, who will be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, heartache, grief. And the list goes on. Paul just doesn't want to focus on all that stuff. Verse 37, in all of these things, in all of the stuff that you face on a daily basis, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything in the whole of creation can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the hope that we have. Yes, we face our heartache squarely, but we don't do it on our own. He is with us, and we bring it to him, and we work through it. I don't know where my piece of paper is. Here it is. I told you it was going to be different this morning. Lunette's going to put up on the screen for those of you who are on Zoom this morning um, something that Marnie is going to give you. And I've had it printed off because I do want it to be a private sort of thing that happens. And I want to read it basically because let me say this our hymn book in the scripture the psalms our hymn book has at least 25 to 30 percent of it are laments if you read through the psalms regularly you will be coming over a lament regularly I asked Randall to read Psalm 4 for us this morning. It's the first lament. The first two Psalms are almost like introduction. And before you know it, you're straight into lament. Why? Because all of us, all the time, are struggling with all the stuff. And the lament that David does, it's a, it's a lament of David's, by the way. I think there are about 75 Psalms in the, in the Psalms that are from David. And I think there are... Forget how many now, but a whole chunk of the Psalms that he wrote are laments. Where he's complaining, he's crying out to God for this or that or something else. So lamentation is a prayer, a cry for help coming out of pain and is common in the Bible. And there's a whole slurb there that I say about lamentation. There are individual Psalms of lament. And then I've listed if you want to go and read them. And there are corporate Psalms of lament which include all these psalms. That's a, that's a chunk of the psalms that are laments of some description. How is it that we don't notice? They follow this general structure. And the reason that I'm saying this to you this morning is because, as I said right at the beginning, I would love you to think of all the stuff that you have to struggle with. And, and we do. I mean, Gail and I have the privilege of knowing stuff that's going on in your lives. And there is nobody who doesn't have to grapple with some of this stuff. 
And the idea really is that you take this structure and you learn to lament with this structure. Go and look at some of the Psalms. My personal preference in terms of lament is Psalm 40. It, um, it starts off and then the, in verse 12 to 17, it goes to something else. where they, Anyway, the point is, this is the general structure. There's an address and an introductory cry. There's saying something, you address God, it doesn't have to be nice. But you just make sure that you know it's him that we're speaking to. And then you tell him exactly what it is that is bugging you. What ails you? Where is your pain? That's the second part. You articulate the problem that you have. And Naomi says, did I come all this way just to come to this place? I could have stayed at home and died, basically. Number three, there's a con confession of trust. I think this is pivotal in the middle of all that we say. We stop and we say, yes, but I know that God loves me. Yes, I know there will be an end. Yes, I do trust his loving kindness. And that's why Lamentations right in the middle stops and you have chapter three. And you have that passage in verse 19 to 26 where he says, all this stuff, yes, but I have hope because his loving kindness never, ever ends. Right in the middle, we remind ourselves. Then we say, we turn it into a prayer for, for deliverance. Restore us. Set us free. Let's get past this. The Lord's Prayer has... Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's no complaint in there, but it does say, deliver us from the evil one. And that's what that part of the lament is. Lord, please bring this to an end. And then at the end, it always ends with a sense. Sometimes it's just half a verse, but it says, we remember that we praise God for who he is. And I want to... I've just given you a short structure of Psalm 4, but to take some time, not necessarily now, but to take some time in the days that lie ahead, or as you read through some of your Psalms in your daily readings, to recognize where there is a lament and to begin to frame your own lament. It doesn't have to be great. It just has to be real. It has to be yours. And that's why Lamentations is in here. That's why it's built into the structure of, of, of Jewish life. Every year they read this together to remind themselves that they have permission to be upset and angry and to bring their troubles to God. Father, we thank you for your presence with us. Not just in this place or this time, but always. We thank you for your peace which descends on us in the midst of all our trials and tribulations. We thank you that your loving kindness never ceases. Your mercies are new today and tomorrow and all the rest of our lives. We thank you for the gift of life 
in your son, Jesus. We thank you for the power to deal with what is thrown at us. Because you have poured your spirit into us. We bless you today for the fact that we can look at all the stuff that's going on inside of us, around us. And with humility, we can come and lay it all before you today. Our doubt, our heartache, our anger, our helplessness. And we can cry to you and say, help us. Help us in our weakness. Help us as we struggle, genuinely struggle with so many different things. But thank you also that we are not without hope, that we do know that you are with us, that you deliver us, that you set us free, that you restore us, that you heal us, that you enable us to live confidently in the face of all this because we know exactly what is happening and that you will always be victorious. We thank you for your light and your love in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that this week, as we deal with our own stuff, we will in turn be able to bring and be bringers of your grace and forgiveness, your mercy and love, your reconciliation and salvation, wherever we happen to be that there will be joy and light because we have been there. Just as we experience that when you have been with us. So we trust ourselves to you for this week and we just ask that as we walk through sometimes wearily the difficult paths that we have, we know that when we look back, there will be only one set of footprints because you carry us. And we cast our burdens on you because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So bless us, we pray. With confidence, we pray this. Bless us this week in and through the name of Jesus. For we ask it in your name. Amen.